0: hey there and welcome back to take one the podcast that brings you just one sacred page of talmud every day and today's page nazir 45 raises a very poignant question about sanctity have a listen do you say the verse is speaking of the peace offering i.e. that the Nazarite shaves after bringing his peace offering. Or perhaps it is only teaching that he shaves at the actual entrance to the tent of meeting, at the gate to the sanctuary, as indicated by a literal reading of the verse. You could say in response, if so, that is a degrading manner of service, to shave at the entrance to the sanctuary. Here's what's going on here. The Nazir brings his peace offering and is then supposed to shave to indicate the end of his period of Naziriteship. And he's supposed to do that, we are told, at the tent of meeting, which is the portable earthly dwelling place of God that the Israelites lugged with them as they erred in the wilderness for 40 years, the holiest place imaginable. But wait a minute, the rabbis say, isn't that just like a touch disrespectful? Do we really want people shaving right there at the entrance of the holiest place imaginable with all the little bits of hair falling everywhere and making everything dirty? which naturally is just a segue into a much bigger discussion, a discussion about what actually makes a place sacred. Isn't God supposed to be everywhere? Doesn't that mean that every place is sacred? How do we decide? And don't we just make places sacred by our actions? These are tough questions, and today's stuff offers no easy answers, but it did bring to mind the last time I personally contemplated these questions intensely when I visited a place that held nothing but a small plaque yet felt to me so immensely holy. I wrote about this place and I would like to share my recollection with you now in the hope that they inspire you to think a little bit about how we could still sanctify those places that cry out for healing. Here it goes. Civilization in America, Frederick Jackson Turner thundered in 1893, has followed the arteries made by geology, pouring an ever-richer tide through them until at last the slender paths of aboriginal intercourse have been broadened and interwoven into the complex mazes of modern commercial lines. The wilderness has been interpenetrated by lines of civilization growing ever more numerous, It is like the steady growth of a complex nervous system for the originally simple, inert continent. The mazes of modern commerce are nowhere in sight on the Bureau of Indian Affairs Highway 27, a two-lane road on the Pine Ridge Reservation in the heart of South Dakota. There aren't a lot of cars here, or at least not the driving kind, There are no repair shops around, and even if there were, 97% of the people here live well below the federal poverty line, which means that once a jalopy breaks down, it's abandoned by the side of the road. But if you drive just slowly enough and pay close attention, you will see a small shaded area just off the highway with a hand-painted sign welcoming you to Wounded Knee. There's no visitor's center here no official plaque, nothing solemn to suggest that the ground is sacred. A roadside Wendy's would have been more ceremoniously marked and more visible. There's just that sign in white and red conveying the dry details of what happened here on December 29, 1890. It tells briefly of how the U.S. 7th Cavalry Regiment arrived to disarm the Lakota and tear them away from their land, how one Lakota man Black Coyote, was deaf and did not fully understand why the soldiers were demanding he surrender his precious rifle, how that rifle went off by accident, and how the 7th Cavalry, armed with four M1875 Mountain Guns, opened fire indiscriminately, slaughtering, by most accounts, about 300 Native Americans, most of them women and children. All this is conveyed briefly and without emotion. If you'd like to learn more about Wounded Knee, you could go online perhaps to the image archive of the Library of Congress, where you can find photographs of the victims lying coatless and lifeless in a blanket of snow. You can also find a snapshot of the massacre's perpetrators standing tall beside their cannons with a caption that reads, These brave men and the Hotchkiss guns that Bigfoot's Indians thought were toys sent two hundred Indians to that heaven which the ghost dancer enjoys. This checked the Indian noise and General Miles with staff returned to Illinois. That is the actual caption. For their service, twenty of these men received the Medal of Honor, the nation's highest military citation. Across the road and up a hill, There is a small cemetery where the remains of wounded knees fallen lie. A few kids were sitting on a fence by the cemetery's gate the day I visited. One was selling dreamcatchers she had made, the other a bundle of wilted sage. I walked in to pay my respects, and as I stood by the small monument commemorating the dead, I felt a strong and sudden jolt of recognition. My grandfather's mother, Bertha, and his sister, Trudy, are buried in a similar mass grave. They too were hauled from their home and shot by men who believed that the world would be pure if their kind no longer walked the earth. Historical analogies are always tragically flawed and meticulously imperfect. But in the sweltering summer heat that day on that hill, I felt the residual evil that makes the air heavy to breathe in places like Wounded Knee or Babi Yar, the evil that has been with us since God informed Cain, that his brother's blood crieth unto the heavens from the ground. I know about Trudy and Bertha's lives and deaths because of an institution called Yad Vashem, which exists to preserve their memory and the memory of millions of other victims like them. And that institution itself exists only because a Jewish state, Israel, exists as well. A solitary example in the modern era of an indigenous people returning to its ancestral homeland, reviving its ancient language, and resuming a sovereign national life. In the shade by the side of the road in South Dakota, I told my hosts about Herzl and Ben-Gurion and Eliezer Ben-Yehuda and about how my wounded people, crushed and deprived of land and liberty and life just over a century ago, are now free to decide their own fate and grieve over their own tragedies, and practice their own beliefs as they see fit. Maybe someday, I added, I would be fortunate enough to visit the Lakota people again and see, if not an independent nation, at least one busy being born. Maybe someday there will be an American Indian, Yad Vashem, there to study the stories of the many who were killed or displaced and the world they left behind. Maybe someday there will be more than just a hand-painted sign at Wounded Knee. Until then, all I could offer the dead was a prayer. Finding a quiet spot, I stepped aside and prayed Mincha, the afternoon prayer. The familiar lines of the Tahnun, the prayer for divine mercy, seemed particularly poignant. And David said unto God, I am in a great strait. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. And let me not fall into the hand of man. Just as we commemorate Tisha B'av and the destruction of our temple, let us remember that new books of lamentations are written in every generation anew. We may not have the power to end suffering, but we do have the duty to obey the old command and remember, especially the sorrow of other indigenous people still awaiting redemption. Talmudik.